Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings, because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. Let us pray. Loving Father, we pray your continued presence with us this morning and we ask that according to your promise that you would continue to fill us with the Holy Spirit, giving us both a hunger for your word and renewed confidence in the gospel as we live as people in the world, yet also citizens of heaven. Today, Holy Father, fill us with hope. We pray in Jesus' name and in the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I wonder if you've ever had this experience. Um, I've had this experience on a number of occasions, usually after I open my mouth. Um, But there are many occasions when we experience this, and and, and this is kind of a a picture of denial, isn't it? It's a denial. That didn't happen. Uh, Particularly... Uh, in trials and in times of hardship as well. This happens, the head goes into the sand. Really what we're talking about today, if I'm just going to say it up front, is that we're talking about how we understand where God is through the tough seasons in our lives. Uh, We need to be honest about this. Um, uh, what, What lies behind people crying out? Questions like, why is this happening to me? Lord, I don't deserve this. Why do we sometimes shake our fists at God? Uh, when things aren't going our way and when we hit hard times. And just to start out, I just want to tell you about an ecumenical event that I went to probably a couple of years ago now, and I was having a wonderful pastoral conversation with another pastoral person there, not part of our church, who was sharing with me their heart uh, in ministry and also some of the weightiness and some of the heavy burdens of ministry. And so it was a really kind of There was lots of people around us, but it was a very focused and zoned-in kind of conversation. And as we were talking, someone came along and they listened in. I reckon must have been not more than 10 seconds listened into the conversation and weren't a part of that conversation. But after they'd had about 10 seconds, they put their hand up in front of us and said, you know, stop it. I choose not to let anything get to me. I declare the name of Jesus and get on with praising him in this world. I don't let anything like that, what you're talking about, even ever get to me. And now it was instantly clear what this, what this person was actually saying was, I continue to numb myself, I continue to numb myself to difficult situations because I don't like dealing with them. That's what it was. Hand comes up, the signal, uh, it was like a switch flicked in this person's eyes when the word suffering came up, don't want to hear about it, not interested in that, just want to praise Jesus and let all that stuff fall by the wayside. Now, may it never be, honestly, may it never be, but one day that person may just break down in despair because they've desperately tried to avoid and deny, put their head in the sand when any kind of suffering and trial or hardship came their way. And they denied it under the guise that Christians don't suffer because they have Jesus. So no matter what, just praise Jesus. Jesus. 
I pray and I know that many of you have experienced God's hand carrying you through all kinds of different things in your life that you struggle with. And so you know this just isn't true. I hope you know. I pray that you know that just isn't true. So how do you understand the trials and the hardships that you're faced with? And where does, where does the Lord God Almighty fit into how you understand the circumstances that you go through in your life? Where does he fit into that? I struggle with it. I'm going to be honest with you. I struggle with this. Suffering is hard. And I honestly find that I'm a bit soft in the midst of it. I'm a bit soft. But I think that if we could thaw someone out that had been frozen for like 2,000 years, if we could thaw them out and speak to them, uh, I think we'd find that we're all pretty soft when the comforts and the pleasures that we think of as our right are stripped away from us. We're actually getting worse and worse at suffering as time goes on. At the same time, please hear this. God isn't the angry kid uh, using the sun and a magnifying glass on you. He's not that angry kid outside waiting for the sun to come, getting the magnifying glass out, hunting the ants and letting the sun shine through and frying the ants on the ground. God isn't one hunting you like ants to trot on you, but he does use everything in your life all the circumstances, all the things that you're going with to draw you close to him and also to help you make sense of his word that says Christians rejoice in their sufferings. Christians rejoice in their suffering. Is that your experience? Rejoicing in hard times? It's actually a hard teaching in the Bible. It's hard to actually get our heads around. And believe me, we're not going to get through it in one sermon. You just won't. This is actually, we grow into this. And so I want to give you a real example uh, this morning that actually happened, a real example of uh, Christians rejoicing in suffering, and it actually happened, but it happened way back in 165 AD, and then again in 251 AD, okay, so two occasions, and what happened on those two occasions in the Roman Empire, first in in 165 and then 251, was that there were two plagues, and each plague lasted for 15 years. So that's 30 years of deadly plague that these people are facing. And yes, I complain when I have to get antibiotics for my five days of tonsillitis. They had 30 years of deadly plague. And I was reading about this a couple of weeks ago. It's in a book written by a sociologist, Rodney Stark. So he's not a Christian. And he's trying to work out how Christianity grew so dramatically in the Roman Empire through these 30 years of deadly plague from something like 6 to 8% of the population to almost 50% of the Roman Empire in a period of 30 years. It's just, how did that happen? How does that happen? What, what's, what's going on in Christians' lives that actually would increase... Uh, the, the population of Christianity from 6 to 8% to 50%. So that's his question. But you see, what happened when these plagues hit, no one had a clue how to treat them. They didn't have a clue what it was. We still don't know what it was. They didn't know what it was. They didn't know how to treat it. What they did know, what the people of the day did know, was that it spread through contact. So the plague spread through contact, and at the height of the second plague... 35,000 people a week were dying. So what did they do? 
the pagans, and I don't say pagans in a negative sense, that's actually their worldview, the pagans left their loved ones behind to die, their parents, their kids, their family, their friends, they left them behind to die, and the rich, and get this, the doctors, left town. They left town because it made sense, it made sense. It was, it was actually the Christians who stayed and, and they rejoiced in staying. They had this dynamic nursing program and because they found out that if you just cared for people, if you gave them something to eat, if you gave them water, if you kept them warm, the death rate of this plague dropped really, really dramatically. And what this sociologist said was that it made sense for the pagans to leave town. It made sense for them to do that. Why? Because their worldview had absolutely no hope apart from staying alive in that moment. So it made sense for them to go. They had no belief in heaven or hell, just living for today. It made sense for them to flee and get out of Dodge. But this guy said it also made sense for the Christians to stay. He's not a Christian, but he's being objective. And I love it when someone's being actually objective because what he said was they could endure the suffering. The Christians could endure the suffering, but they could endure it because they could face dying themselves because they knew the gospel. They could nurse and look after the sick because they knew the gospel. They knew this life was just a prelude of the life of the world to come. And that's where their joy came from. That's where their courage came from. That's why they could stay. And so these Christians, they increased biologically through these plagues, but also because, and you will guess this already, thousands upon thousands of pagans had the Christians to thank for their lives. And there were many, many, many converts because the Christians hung in there and they stayed. Did those Christians suffer? Oh, yeah. They suffered. They felt the suffering. It wasn't easy. They lived and they grieved through the deaths of not only the people they were trying to save, but their own children. They grieved through that. They felt that intensely. Their parents, their friends, they felt it, but they stayed. But they didn't stay grudgingly, but with rejoicing and and a willingness because of their faith and the living hope that was theirs in the Lord Jesus Christ. They were able to stay. They didn't look around at all the dead bodies falling. 35,000 people falling a week at the height of this second plague. You know, over over this 30 years, probably 250 to 300,000 people died. And is that more than the, it's about the population of Townsville and Cairns put together? Everyone wiped out, all gone. They didn't look around at all these dead bodies and say, you know what, I'm not going to face that. I'm just going to praise Jesus and not think about plague. You can't do that with all these bodies around you. You can't actually live in denial and say, I'm just going to praise Jesus through this. Honestly, if you're going to do that, if you want to live through suffering like that, you have to kill parts of who you are to actually keep going. You have to die inside. And when I shared at the beginning of the person who just shuts out suffering, I just praise Jesus, what they're saying in many respects to Christians who are struggling through hard times is that it's wrong as a Christian to really feel the grief and the suffering that we go through. So you should try and avoid it. Let's not do that. Let's not do that. Let's not feel as though we have to put on our Sunday best in front of the brothers and the sisters only to cover ourselves with sackcloth and ashes and shave our heads and throw ourselves down and weep when we get back to the lounge room at home. Let's not do that. That's plastic. That's not the the fellowship of faith. 
You can't shut out 30 years of deadly plague that's causing people to fall all around you and sing praises to God as if it never happened. And God isn't calling you as his people, as his children, to hide behind a smile when you feel like shaving your head and screaming at the top of your lungs and throwing yourself down because you really feel the grief, you really feel the pain that you go through in your life. He doesn't ask you to do that. Rejoicing in suffering means it's okay to be genuine, it's okay to be real, it's okay to let people see you as you really are. You don't have to cover that up. Remember Job? Do you remember when Job was struck down physically? His, his health was gone, his children were all killed, all his wealth was stripped away. What does it say? What does the Bible say about that? It says he ripped his clothes, he shaved his head, he fell to the ground and screamed. And then the text says, in all this, Job sinned not. In all of this, Job sinned not. Which means that what he did was perfectly in line with rejoicing in suffering. Now, in your average Christian church, you have a think about it. How would people respond if they saw someone screaming on the floor with torn clothes and shaved head and and just screaming, maybe at the front of the church in pain and you hear the agony in their their screaming? What, What would people do in the church? Pastor, come quickly. Quick, come. This person doesn't know Jesus. You better say something. Christians don't do this kind of thing pastor christians don't do this kind of thing oh yes they do oh yes they do and you may well have just done that in your own home covered up on the pillow and cried yourself and wept uh, a river of tears in your bed it's just that no one else here saw it in all of this job sinned not Let's reframe and let's see what we're talking about through the lens of the gospel today. You hear big statements, you've heard it from the pulpit, you've heard it all your life in the church. The gospel transforms our lives. And this is actually true, but maybe it's not how you expect. Human hearts like to think that the gospel transformation that actually happens in us means that stuff won't get to me anymore or that God won't allow certain things to happen to me. Or even on the other other side of it, I really hope to suffer today so that I can rejoice. I really hope I suffer because that gives me identity. That makes me unique when I'm suffering as a Christian and I can tell people about that. That's not biblical. The Bible says that Christians have this unique ability, that you have this unique ability. And that ability is that you can rejoice in your sufferings. It means that through the cross, you can really live your life in the confidence of the gospel of Jesus, that God has given you the hope of heaven, that God has given you the hope of a judgment day when all evil and all hardship and all suffering will be put down and cast down eternally. You've been given the hope of the God almighty who is sovereign and just and loving, which you've experienced through the cross and through the love of Jesus Christ poured out for you that you've received the Holy Spirit and that the promise is that you will continue to be filled with the Holy Spirit as you call on God. In other words, you've received all the resources you need to face what's before you in this life. 
And as you grasp that in your heart, and that's part of what it means to come and worship and hear from God and let this gospel truth actually grow and blossom and unfold, you grow in your understanding as it, as it takes root in your heart, as you understand Jesus' blood poured out for all sin on the cross, as that takes root in you, it transforms your whole world view. You weep at the effects of your own sin. You weep at that. You weep at the effect of sin in the world, but at the same time, it drives you to the cross of Jesus Christ. It drives you there. It fixes your sights on the hope of what will ultimately be revealed at the return of Jesus. It focuses every fibre of your being on what you've received through the promises of your own baptism into Jesus Christ. You have hope to rejoice and really be in the suffering. You can really be there. You can really live there because you're there, but you have great hope, a living hope, a transforming hope that is poured into you by the presence of God and through the Holy Spirit. Otherwise, what happens? When suffering comes, you just got to get away from it. You can't stand in it. You've got to get away from it somehow. You do anything to escape and wrap your heart up in little luxuries and thoughts and rationalizations that make you feel better. But actually, that's not the living hope that has come to you through the gospel, through Jesus Christ. The hope of the gospel means you can really be in life and really live in it. You feel the pain, but you don't need to hide or repress how you feel. You don't need to flee when things get bad because you know you're not alone. These things, these sufferings, these trials and hardships that you go through only draw you closer to God, closer to the cross of your Saviour, closer in participating in in just a tiny smidgen, a tiny pinprick's worth of the sufferings that Jesus endured for you at Calvary. And you know that the living God, it's Trinity Sunday today, Father, Son and Holy Spirit, In him you have the life and the resources and the living hope of the whole Godhead with you and for you in absolutely every circumstance that you face, working for your good, loving you, filling you with the Holy Spirit. May the Lord comfort you through the forgiveness that is yours in Jesus. And may he work in you and through you to build you up in faith and in love so that you can stand in him and rejoice for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health until he comes. The Lord holds you in the palm of his hands. He will not let you go. He has your life. Rest in him and rejoice, feel, live in the Lord your God. Amen. And may the peace of God, which surpasses all human understanding, guard your hearts and keep them safe in Christ Jesus. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that for Trinity Sunday, that we worship you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that you are present with us and for us, and that we don't stand in our own strength, but that you flood us and fill us with your power, with your strength, with your love, with your forgiveness and healing 
with the redemption that's ours in Christ Jesus. You dwell in our hearts by faith. You lift us up. You seated us with Christ in heavenly places. There's nothing that you haven't done for us, Lord, so we need not fear. Give us confidence and a renewed confidence in you. Give us a renewed confidence in your gospel message as your people. That we would stand no matter what we face in this, in this life with the joy of what you've set before us. Amen.